0: Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment now for silent reflection. Gracious God, as we come to this moment of silence and reflection, maybe the most silent and reflective we've been all week, Because even though our bodies are relatively still these days with sheltering in place and quarantining, the reality is our hearts and our minds continue to race. There are voices that shout at us so loudly we can hardly hear anything else. Voices of worry and concern about our own lives or our loved ones. Voices that tell us the future will not be better than the present. Voices that regret the past. And yet, Lord, here comes your voice the still, small voice that speaks truth in love. Give us ears to hear that voice now. By the power of your Holy Spirit, teach us in a way that our lives would be transformed. Wake us up to your grace. Give us a hope and a future, not only because you're in it, but because you call us to walk with you. Give us the grace now to do just that, for our good and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm usually a more sunny side up person, but I've got to tell you, this quarantine time has got me a bit in the doldrums uh, as well. And I know for many of you, you know, we, we talk about this and you read all this new study comes out every week that, you know, Americans are less happy than they've been in the last 50 years and cases of uh, actual, you know, Light symptoms to heavy symptoms of depression are increasing and probably going to increase. And I try to count the things that I've got going for me. I try to stay on the gratitude side of things. I, mean, I think one of the best ways that I've found to get out of the tailspin of, uh, you know, of the doldrums is to write down all the things that are good that God's provided that we've been able to do in this time or to enjoy. So one of the arguments I keep trying to have with myself is, you know, there are a lot of things that got scrubbed from the calendar. This is the year that Florence and I celebrated our 15th wedding anniversary. We had a trip to South America planned for that, which obviously is not taking place. I celebrated my 40th birthday, but birthday during quarantine is just really not quite the same, and it wasn't exactly what I had expected for my 40th birthday. So I was looking for just some silver lining a couple weeks ago, and I said to my neighbor across the street, you know, all I want to do is float down a river on an inner tube. And he says, Matt, I know just the place on the Kern River, about 300 miles north of here. So I called up this place on the Kern River, and they're, of course, packed, because if, if you've tried to buy a bike or exercise equipment or anything that gets you outside right now, there, it's all sold out because everyone's going out and, and getting out in the outdoors, which is good in general. It was bad for my current situation because I wanted to get a spot to go and camp there. And I called them up, and, and they, they're packed, and even if they had an available space, you could only do a four-night minimum stay. And I didn't have four nights to spare. I just had Sunday night and Monday night because one of the interesting and odd things of being a pastor is my weekend is generally you know Sunday afternoon and Monday. So I was going to take that. Anyways, I call him up and I say, hey, my name's Matt. My family wants to come up. We only have Sunday night and Monday night. Is there anything you could do for me? The guy goes, you know, actually, my favorite camping spot in the whole park is available only for Sunday night and Monday night. And if you want it, it's all yours. So we went up there. We had such a great time together. The spot is right in the middle of the park. And so you, you hike for a little bit. With your inner tube, you jump in, you float the river for a half hour, and then you hike back up to the camping spot, have a snack, and then repeat, and just do that all day long. Now, this was my first time inner tubing down a river that was uh, both had a combination of rather low water and really big rocks. So it made for really exciting rapids. There's one rapid called Big Daddy, which, you know, I remember the feeling of it more than I remember the experience because the rocks come out of nowhere and seem to just pop up and hit you right on the backside as you're going down. So I tell that story to you, A, because I want you to know I still found a way to have a good time last week. And because as soon as I hear this story about Peter, who's going to become called the rock, you know, there's a lot of theological study. A lot of scholars have spilt a lot of ink about that. But when I hear hear the word rock now I feel the word rock because you know what rocks are hard rocks are sturdy rocks are strong rocks aren't going anywhere so in in many ways that was the rock experience that hurt my back but it's also a compliment when Jesus calls Peter a rock because in many ways he's saying you are sturdy you are strong you are durable you're not going to be moved You're, you're here you're stable now here's the thing about that is that's not actually the experience of Peter's life he is not the most stable person in the room. When Jesus calls Peter the rock, he is not being descriptive by just giving him a compliment, saying, I've noticed you, and you are sturdy and strong and stable, and you, know, and you don't waver. He's not being descriptive. He's being prescriptive. He's saying, I see something in you, Peter. I see something in you, and as you follow me, you're going to become a person who doesn't waver back and forth and left and right. You're going to become a person who is more sturdy and more solid and more stable, even through all of the ups and downs of this world. So the question for you and me today is, how do we become more like that? In a world that is unpredictable, when no one can predict what the future looks like in our country or in our world right now, how can you go through this world without getting tossed and turned back and forth? but rather with stability, with a sturdiness to you. A sturdiness and a stability that's not rigid, that's not cynical, that's not bitter, that's not cold, but that's actually flexible and buoyant and warm and connected. How do you go through life like that? And in this passage we see the proclamation of Peter, the proclamation of Jesus, and we see a picture of the kingdom of God. Now, first, the proclamation of Peter... We see here that Jesus is asking his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? Now, we go, Son of Man, what does that even mean? That is a a loaded term that goes back to the Old Testament prophet Daniel, who is describing what it's going to be like when God comes himself to make all things right. And he has this kind of beautiful prophetic, symbolic vision of the coming kingdom of God. And he says, then I saw one coming on the clouds like the Son of Man. And it has this vision of God who's going to make all things new and make all things right. And so already Jesus is tipping his hand and saying, so what's everybody saying about the Son of Man? In other words, saying that one that Daniel looked forward to is looking you in the eyes right now. Which just stops you and me right here because I think on the face of it, that should startle all of us. Because what we want to do usually with Jesus is keep him important enough to respect and revere so we're not rude. But powerless enough that we don't actually have to respect and obey and trust everything that he says and does. We like to keep him somewhere in the middle. C.S. Lewis, a long time ago, wrote about this phenomenon when he said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg... See, that's one of the things about Jesus. Whenever he meets somebody, he always forces them to make a decision. People walked away from an, ex- an, an experience with Jesus, either knowing that they had met the Son of God or hating him and reviling him. But nobody walked away and just said, you know, I had an interesting conversation with a rather interesting teacher. It just didn't happen. So the question that he begins to ask is, who do you say that I am? Friends, we are postmodern post-enlightenment, post-Christian, often urban, secular people. And I don't think we put very much thought into that question these days. Often, especially if you grew up in church and either had a negative experience or you had an experience where it just never really connected with you deeply, I think it's easy to be inoculated against the divinity of Jesus and say, I've thought about it, I've considered it maybe kind of just tip of the hat, give a nod of respect and keep on walking. Except Jesus is always getting back in front of you and saying, don't you realize when you treat me that way, you miss out on who I actually am. Now, the disciples answer wisely. And now, by now, they've been walking with him and working with him and ministering with him. They have seen the the crowds of thousands of people fed with just a few loaves and a few fish. They have seen him raise somebody from the dead. They have seen him taught with an authority that no one else has ever seen And so when he says, who do you say I am? They say, well, some say you're John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah. Some say you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And they're already putting him in kind of the the greatest, you know, the top ten list of the prophets and those who would point the way to Messiah. But it's Peter who gets in and says, Jesus is not just one more prophet showing the way to get to God. Jesus is the Christ, is the Messiah, is the Son of Man. Jesus is God himself who has broken through and come through to get to us. you see the difference? All other religious leaders are showing you some sort of moral code or ethical way of life or they are finger pointing the way to get to the divine. That if you walk the, the path or the pillars or you do things right, you get to the divine. But only Jesus is God himself who breaks through to get to you. And Peter's proclamation reveals that he's beginning to pick up on that. Now, there's something else interesting about the location where Jesus asks this question. Matthew, the gospel writer, makes sure that we know that they are coming into the district of Caesarea Philippi. And we know about this district that it was along a very important trade route that connected the the area of Tyre, which we heard about last week with the area of Damascus to the northeast. And so this is a very important economic trade round. This was also a place where there were more than one temples, where people could meet with different pagan gods. First it was the the pagan god Pan, and then it was multiplied out to include other deities as well. And so this was a religiously pluralistic area. It was also a place that had power of the empire as some of the Tetrarchs would create fortresses there. In fact, by this point, the audience that is reading Matthew's gospel would be aware of the story that after the Jews, or after, after the, the Jews in Jerusalem were completely scattered and obliterated and the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, that the Roman occupation and the soldiers went back to Caesarea Philippi to celebrate together. And so the point is, it's in the midst of this place that is the intersection of trade and economy and religion and empire. Jesus says, who do you say I am? It's as if he's asking a diagnostic question to get at, where are you going to find real life in this world? Are you going to continue searching spiritually in any place that you can looking for a new mystical spiritual experience and you've tried all these different things and you've read all these different books but it doesn't seem to be filling you? Are you going to sell out to the empire and are you going to put your trust in more warheads or more spears or more chariots or more horses or more tanks and if we can just have enough power we can hold the world at the tip of the spear and create some sort of peace? Are you trusting in the economy? Are you trusting in your finances? He comes before you and says, let's get very specific. Who do you say that I am? That's both a challenging question because it makes us look deeply into our lives. It's also a deep invitation as he says, don't you see that when you give your life to me, you don't lose it. You actually begin to find out who you were created to become that you don't lose all these other aspects of your life, but rather you begin to orient them around me at the center, and they take on their true meaning and true value. The proclamation of Peter is the beginning of the key that unlocks that. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But then there's a proclamation of Jesus. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. When we first meet Peter, his name is Simon. Jesus constantly was changing people's names. And to name something is to exert power over it. And names back then, as they do now in many situations, have deep and profound meaning. And Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. You are Peter, in Greek, petros, which is where we get the word rock. Petrified wood is wood that has turned to stone. You are the rock. And as I said earlier, this is not necessarily descriptive of Peter as he currently is. Peter, known for being the hothead, who would speak first and think second, or act first and reflect later. Even here we see him with this profound moment of saying, you are the Christ, but very soon he will reveal that he has absolutely no idea what that means. The one who will say, I will go to Jerusalem and die with you if I have to, but when he actually is in Jerusalem and Jesus is on trial, Peter will deny even knowing Jesus at all. He goes up and down. He is anything but a rock. Jesus' proclamation is not descriptive, it's prescriptive. You will become a sturdy and stable person as you walk with me. In fact, after Peter denied knowing Jesus three times, Jesus, the resurrected one, goes and gets in front of Peter, makes him breakfast on a beach. You get breakfast for failures right there. And three times he says, Peter, I love you. Peter, feed my sheep. Peter, lead my church. He's calling him back. He's continually getting in front of him and you and me to say, Your failures are not the defining characteristic of your life. My grace and my calling and my presence can outshine the darkness of your failures if you will let them. Listen to me. And Peter goes on in Acts chapter 2, in the center of Jerusalem, instead of being afraid and hiding, goes on to preach a sermon out in public that 3,000 people come to Christ that day. And he goes on to become one of the most influential leaders in the history of the world. He becomes a rock. But he's not one right now. Jesus sees something in him. Jesus sees something in you and me. Often we see our failures. Often we see our weaknesses. And we allow that to shout at us. But Jesus comes and says, I created you. I know you. I love you. I've redeemed you. I call you my own. And I see greatness in you. Come. Follow me. Let's see how far this adventure goes as we walk together. And so here's the point. Peter becomes the rock. Not because of his sturdiness, but because he chooses to build his life on Jesus, who is the actual rock. There's a place in Scripture where Jesus says, Blessed is the one who hears my words and puts them into practice. They're like a wise person who builds their house on a rock instead of building their house on sand. A foolish person builds their house on sand and when the wind comes and the waves rise, the house is washed away because the sand is unstable and unsturdy. But the wise one who builds their house on the rock, when the wind comes and the waves rise, notice he says when they come, not if they come, because they will come. When the wind comes and the waves rise, the house is not going anywhere because the rock, the foundation is sturdy. Peter is someone who in fits and starts figured that out and began to build his life on the rock. Friends, what would you say is the foundation of your life? Ask someone who knows you well. Ask them, what would you say is the foundation of my life? What would you say I'm building my life on? And then listen to what they say. And see that Jesus, the Son of Man, the Messiah, is the rock who will never leave you or forsake you. You know, this is one of the things that changed the life of Martin Luther, the great reformer who uh, was the catalyst for the Reformation movement in the 16th century. And he was previously a lawyer, never did measure up. His dad was uh, was really let down by the fact that Martin Luther was giving up a law career to become an Augustinian priest. And he had this tremendous inner critic himself. So his dad would tell him that he doesn't measure up. And then his own conscience would tell him that he's never going to amount to anything. And he was often tormented. And he was going through seminary studies and learning how to read and interpret scriptures in the original Hebrew and Greek. And he was interpreting Ephesians chapter 2 verse 9 that says, By grace you have been saved through faith so that no one can boast. And earlier he had always understood that to mean by grace you are saved through faith, through your own faith. By grace, you are saved by having enough faith, by believing enough, by doing the right things often enough. And when you can muster all of that together, then you will be saved. And it crushed him because he never could measure up, just as it would crush you and me. And then he realized there's actually a more faithful translation of that passage, pun intended, when it says, you are saved by grace through faith, not your faith. But through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Do you see the difference? You are saved by God's grace because God is faithful. You don't become a rock because you're sturdy, you become a rock because you build on Jesus. You are saved by grace through faith, not because you've mustered up enough faith and believed all the right ways, because Jesus is faithful and will never leave you or forsake you, because you stand on Him. Do you see the difference? It's as though an image of faith would be two people are about to walk out onto a frozen lake in the middle of winter. And one part of the lake has a, a sheet of ice that is just one millimeter thick. And the other part where the other person is going is three feet thick. You could drive a Mack truck across it. But they both look the same. And the person who walks out onto the little millimeter thick sheet of ice is totally confident and totally bold and not afraid of anything. And they walk out there confidently and they sink right through the ice. And another person walks onto the three feet thick sheet of ice, timid, trembling, barely able to put one foot in front of the other. And yet there they, there they are. And they are sturdy and strong as ever. You see, it's not the strength of the person's faith in that moment that's going to keep them above the ice. It's the strength of the ice on which they're standing. And Jesus says, I'm not only ice, I'm a rock. You are going to be saved through my faithfulness. As we saw when Peter was slipping two weeks ago, the most important thing was not that Peter could hold on to Jesus. The most important thing is that Jesus could hold on to Peter. As we saw last week with the, the Canaanite woman who comes to Jesus, she comes not based on her own argument of her faithfulness. She comes making a plea because she knows that Jesus is trustworthy and good. And so to be a Christian... It's not to say, you know, are you a Christian? Yes, I am because I get all my, you know, I, I'm very moral, I'm very ethical, I treat people well. I hope you do all those things. I hope you at least strive for those things. But that's not what makes you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is you say, I have found Jesus, the faithful one, who's been able to grab me and pull me out of the sinking waters, who's been able to be the rock on which I can build my house. Am I sturdy and am I secure? Gosh, when I look in the mirror, I don't feel it. But I trust that I am because I'm building my life on him. And he will never leave me or forsake me. A whole new buoyancy and stability to our lives. And I just want to leave you with this picture of the kingdom of God. And it's easy to miss. But Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. By the way, some people, when he says, on this rock I will build my church, some people make the argument he's saying, Peter, I will build my church church on you as a Christian leader Uh, and many people would say Jesus is saying I will build my church on the proclamation that you're making here that I'm the Messiah the son of the living God on that rock on that sturdiness of me being the Messiah we are going to build the church at any rate what I want to highlight is he says and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it many translations say the gates of hell will not prevail against it I want you to not miss, because you kind of have to go back to, like, Game of Thrones and think about a city that has gates, okay? Often is, oftentimes, especially when things are really difficult, like they are right now with the COVID-19 pandemic and economic turmoil, and as, as we're seeing racial injustice in many places of our society, it's easy to say, you know, the, the evil or the darkness is prevailing, and it is, it's kind of attacking the goodness of God in this world. But that's not the image that Jesus gives here it is the kingdom of God that is on the advance and it is the gates of hell that are on defense and their defense is not good enough for the kingdom of God. Which means the kingdom of God is actually moving forward as light moves into darkness, as wholeness moves forward into chaos. That he is actually rebuilding and renewing all things, sometimes slowly, sometimes imperceptibly, but the connotation he is saying is the kingdom of God is on the move. And then he says, and we don't have time to get into all of it, but I will give you keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind will be bound, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And what he's saying is, the kingdom of God is on the move. And the light is dawning, and the new creation is breaking forth in the midst of the old. It started at the cross when I took all pain and sin and death and injustice upon my shoulders and let it crash fully on me. And then three days later, in the resurrection, showed the final word on this world is not brokenness, but new creation, is not death, but new life. And Then he says, and I'll give you keys. And whatever you do on earth actually matters. Whatever you do on earth is reflected in heaven. As Christopher J.H. Wright, great missiologist, says, the mission of God of the renewal of all creation, that's God's mission. The miracle is that he invites you and me to join in. So my friends, Renew Church, to you has been given the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and it's on the move. How is it advancing into your life? And what are you going to do with those keys today for the people around you? And as we do, we are living into the prayer that we will pray in just a little while when we say, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we do pray now that you would help us to see that you are not merely another teacher or a good prophet or a kind of a smart miracle worker, but you actually are the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God, the one who is the rock, who is sturdy, and we can build our lives on you. Help us to more and more do that. And then help us to be the rock wherever we go for others who are sinking. We pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. In your name, amen.